Hello and welcome to the Noise Careers Podcast. I am your host, Jesse Cannon, and today I'm here with Derek Wibley of Sum 41. We talk a whole lot about production and geeky stuff and his songwriting process and all that because he has a new record out called Order and Decline with Sum 41. So I wanted to sit down, discuss this. We had a nice chat in a cool Manhattan hotel on a really, really rainy day. And I think it was a lot of fun. I think you should check out their new record. It really uh, has the same spirit as the early stuff that I really enjoyed. So I've been enjoying that a lot lately. And without further ado, I'm going to let this interview go. Hello, my name is Jesse Cadden. I've devoted my life to trying to go deep and figure out what goes into making great albums. In the past, I've been lucky enough to make great records with bands like The Cure, Animal Collective, The Misfits, and over a thousand others. I've written two books and recorded hundreds of podcasts pursuing the hidden secrets of how great music gets to the world's ears. Now I'm proud to present to you Atlantic Records Inside the Album Podcast. Atlantic has granted me unprecedented access to the artists, producers, managers, and A&R to discuss what goes into really making the great records they release. On this season, we talked to Dashboard Confessional about making a record that pleases both himself and fans both old and new. I like our old stuff better, and I like moments and songs from our later era of recording. But as a whole body of work, I like everything up through half of Dusk and Summer. Jeff Richmond and the creators of the hit play Mean Girls talk about what goes into developing a mega-hit Broadway play and cast recording. Trying to find out what is that song that you actually want to like sit down and write is tricky and is a challenge because there's not that much real estate for songs, even though it's a musical. Vance Joy talks creating a follow-up to a successful debut album. And I'm all, like eating my lunch before breakfast, kind of like getting too far ahead before I'm like focusing on just this one detail of what am I doing making a song. Pete Wentz of Fall Out Boy talks mentoring nothing nowhere. But first you find out if you like someone's art. If you do and that's interesting to you, you find out what their basic mission statement as an artist is. And then you see if you can align with that vision. And we also talked to Grandson about crafting his highly politically charged debut EP. The indie rock band wallows on making a record that sounds like the loss of youth. Jason Mraz on finding a greater truth in music for his latest LP, No. And Brent Cobb on making honest music. Subscribe now and stay tuned for the deepest inside look you will get into how great records are being made today. You can also head to AtlanticPodcast.com for more information on this podcast and Atlantic Records. So someone's totally fucking clueless about music. How do you tell them what you do for a living? Well, if they're clueless about music, then I probably do a pretty bad job. I don't know. I play rock music. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of what I do. I assume you went musician to production in that order. Could you tell me about how that evolved? Kind of, yeah. I mean, when I was learning how to play guitar, early on was learning how to record as well. I was fortunate enough to be given a bunch of, you know, really low-level recording equipment, you know, for a couple months. Somebody loaned me some stuff. It was like a four-track with a few different mics, like a couple Sennheiser 421s and like two condenser microphones and you know sm57 and something like that and so what i was doing was going around and just recording some of the high school bands that were around just so i could i don't know i had this fascination of recording bands as well as learning how to write and play music learning both at the same time nice 
So obviously, early records were produced. You've worked with some of the better producers. My favorite of all time, Jerry Finn. How did you come to being like, okay, I'm going to put my foot down and really do this myself instead of, you know, you've obviously seen amazing producers and what they add to it. What made you have the confidence that you're like, I need to do this myself now? Well, I don't know if the confidence is really ever there. You just sort of do it and hope for the best. But I think the thing that sort of pushed me towards doing it was, one, learning from a lot of the best guys, Jerry Finn, one of my favorites, obviously, too. And even though we didn't work on a ton of records together, I was really close with him, you know, right up until his death. And he taught me a lot. We would talk a lot about stuff. We would get together and go for drinks and just, we just talk about nerd stuff, you know. And to a point where I still feel like, even though when I'm producing stuff now, I still kind of feel like, you know, Jerry is somewhat a part of it because a lot of stuff I do is everything he taught me. And a lot of times when I get stuck or I'm wondering about something, I'll think like, well, what would have Jerry done? And since I knew him well enough, I could kind of figure out what he would say. And so I sort of feel like he's kind of still guiding me along a little bit. Is there anything specific you could tell me about that? Since I know probably everybody who listens to this podcast, it's like, it's very rare to hear anybody who has the insight of probably like, you know, one of the most legendary people who's not with us anymore. Well, the thing with Jerry was that things were very simple, but things were also very, he was very big on keeping things sounding and feeling live and real, not really overproducing stuff. That's why I sort of gravitated towards him in the beginning, which is why he did our first record, because we did meet with a lot of different producers, but I really felt like, we all did, the whole band felt that Jerry understood what we were trying to do, and we were all on the same page, and we just wanted to make a real sounding record, you know, and not to second guess a lot of stuff. If it feels good, just do it, and when I'm making a record now, I still just do it the same kind of way. I mean, we did those early records on tape, so we really had to play, and We still do the same thing now, even though we are going to Pro Tools for the most part. We still do drums on tape, and we dump that into Pro Tools. But the mentality is still the same. Like, you got to play it. We don't copy and paste something and move it and just, you know, we play every part of it. Totally. So your process now, so... Are you demoing and then making it a separate process? What was the thought on this record of how to get the uh, best product possible? Well, yeah, I'm always big on demoing because that's just sort of what I've always done. Whenever I have a song, I I just put it down and I try to throw as much on it as I can. All the different guitar parts that I can and I make a full sounding demo and, you know, with my drum machine and stuff like that. And then I sort of listen to it and then I start critiquing it and like changing things and doing whatever I need to before I do as much as I can. Basically, I, I finish as much as I can to a point where I think I, I can't do anymore. I'm going to bring this to the band now. Then that's when we sort of get into a room and see if there is if we can take it anywhere else or if it just stays the same, you know, things like that. We change a drum beat here and there and and so then it moves on to a formal recording process all at once in the record, or are you guys just kind of... Every solely? record is different. Okay. The last record we did, 13 Voices, was recorded in pieces here and there. I mean, it was kind of done in a way where I'd have half a song written, but we only had a little bit of studio time, so I would go in with our drummer and say, okay, here's let's play half the song that I got, and then just give me a bunch of different drum beats, because I've got some ideas, but I don't know where I'm going to go with it, so give me a fast beat, give me a halftime beat, give me this and that. Give me some with a bunch of fills, and, and I would just sort of finish the song and kind of piece it together that way. This last record was totally different. I had all the songs written ahead of time. We went into a rehearsal studio and worked on all these songs. Then we went on the road for the whole year, and we just worked on these songs in soundcheck every day. So by the time we got done with the tour, we went into the studio and did the drums in, I don't know, three days. And that was that. You know, it was really quick. You know, it's always funny. Like, I feel like uh, a consistent thing I hear of, like, 
bands who do good work. It's like a lot of the sound check is part of the process. Is there any influence having other people around or people like barking things to you and suggestions ever? Or is it, do people know to be in check? Like, it does anything you mean people happen, as like, in the band or, or people, people who are standing around? Like, the one thing about writing at Soundcheck, obviously, is you have 13 people who are not in your band watching <laughs> yeah. you write a song. No, I mean, the songs are written. Like, that's like I was saying, like, I have to really work on a song till I can't do anything else to it. So it usually kind of comes to the band as complete as I can make it. So the songwriting is usually done. It's more of just the parts that we're going to do, whether it's we're going to change some drum beats or change, you know, everyone kind of plays things their way and bass, you know, I don't really come up with any bass parts. I just throw a quick bass down and, our, and Cone will come up with all his bass lines and all that kind of stuff. And that's what we usually work on in a rehearsal place. But by the time we're doing stuff in soundcheck, that's mostly rehearsal. Because like I said, we do everything so live in the studio and we don't really rely on Pro Tools as a, an editing machine or a you know, copy and pasting machine that we're trying to get real takes down. So the better we know that stuff, which is something we learned from Jerry, you know, we were very well rehearsed when you went into the studio because we were on tape back then. So like I said, the mentality is still the same. We go into it with, let's cut this stuff as fast, but as real as possible. You kind of left off on the part, so you guys get done going on the road. Do you go to a different studio? Do you track this at your own place? What happens with actual making of this record? We did some stuff at the house just just to see how it would sound, like drum-wise. More of like a you know pre-production type of thing. But I mean, I wrote a lot and recorded a lot of parts especially my guitar riffs and things like that, like while we were on the road in buses and in hotels. And then I would kind of piece that into the final recording at home. So I do keep a lot of the stuff from the demos. But yeah, the drums, we went into East West in LA and did that for three days. You know, we did that to tape and, you know, the two inch and dump it into Pro Tools when it's all done. And then, then we go back to my house. And then at that point, it's just kind of me at home there. And I just do my thing. And, you know, like I said, the guys, everyone knows what to do. So either they'll come down and just blast it out in a couple of days, or they just send me some stuff that they've already recorded because everyone has a home studio. Awesome. So how about, feel like every record is always like a reaction in some way to the last mm-hmm. record. So you're either like, I want to change this up, or you're like, I want to just do that better. What were the thoughts going into this record about what you wanted to well, do? Well, the difference with this record, I mean, everything was different. Like I was saying before, where the last record was pieced together in certain ways. And, you know, our old guitar player had come back sort of near the end of that making of that record. So he wasn't, he was on the record, but it was, we were trying to like find some songs that he could get on there and sort of near the end. But a lot of it had already been done. So this record was the first time that we were a five piece, that we were really well rehearsed and that we'd worked on stuff and, and it wasn't, you know, it's so kind of like the last record had nothing to do with this record in a way. It was almost like we weren't using the last record as any kind of model in any way. It was just, this is its own thing. It's completely different. We're a five piece for the first time. It just kind of felt like a new band in a way. Nice. So the one thing, I only got the record today, so mm-hmm. I got to scan it pretty fast, but the one thing I did really like is I really loved the vocals. And oh, it did cool. seem like a little bit of a fresh approach. Was there any thought behind that that happened? No, there's no thoughts about anything, really. <laughs> Everything is just like all about feel, and just you just go in and do it, and you have the music that you've got, and you just try your best, and you hope for the best. So that's nice to hear. That's, uh, <laughs> but but more good, just but emotional reaction rather than like you thinking about what you want to do something different. Yeah, no, I didn't think about anything. I never have. You just kind of just go out and do your best. 
Gotcha. So how about let's talk a little bit equipment. So you're talking about that you're recording guitars all throughout. So I imagine you're doing a lot of DIs. And then yeah, a it? lot of DIs. And I run it all through my amps at home. So all real amps. So let's, let's get into that. Like what were some of the sounds of the record? I mean, I've got quite a few amps. I tend to lean to a lot of Marshalls, but they all sound so different. I mean, it's another thing I learned from Jerry actually was it's always... For the most part, I can say 95% of the time, it's two amps every time for one sound. So it's it can be, say, my 800 along with, I have a diesel Herbert that I, I really like. So I'll fold those two in together, maybe favoring the 800 more, and then bringing the diesel in for a little bit of extra, you know, oomph. And then I'll do that with other ones. I mean, I've got a VHT Pitbull that I'll put with, say, my Jubilee or something like that. I've got this old Super Bass. It's a 69 Super Bass, and I had it modded, and it's really loud. It's really thick. It's really, really great sounding. It's almost like it's got too much gain, so you really have to put it at, like, 1.5. And it's just, like, that perfect kind of gain. And then, you know, like, modded Plexis and stuff like that. They all sound kind of different, though. So... How about process-wise? Are you doing all the reamping at the end? Are you doing that throughout, just getting every once in a while to doing that with different songs? Are you trying to give the whole record a feel type thing? Usually I just get takes down. A lot of times I'll do that, I'll play through a Kemper and grab a DI. And that way I can just kind of like bounce around. And I have all my own sounds in the Kemper. I don't use the Kemper sounds. I've profiled all my amps. So I kind of have an idea of where I'm going to go and what starts to blend well together. And, you know, I'll run the other guy's DIs through and just sort of scroll through and see what sounds good. And then I have a basis of where to start. And then once all the takes are done, now I can just focus on sounds and sort of just be a producer and not a musician and a producer in the same day. And then, yeah, I just run through all the amps and just see what sounds best. Sometimes the amp that I had going on in the Kemper is not the amp that it ended up being. Totally. She talks about the same day. Is, is there anything you have to do a lot to maintain the headspace to keep this going? Any, anything that is very uh, crucial to the process with, with staying separate as obviously singer, songwriter, producer? Yeah, I, I don't really think about it too much anymore. I think in the earlier days of it, you could get caught up in writing and producing in the same day. You get like half a song and you want to produce that little bit and you want to like start looking for guitar sounds and doing all the stuff and trying to overproduce this little bit of a song and you've wasted all your creativity on, you know, playing around with all your toys instead of just focusing on finishing the song. So I, I really try to keep myself you know, separate. If I'm writing, then I just wait till the whole writing process is done. I have all the songs and I'll play with the toys later. I like that. So how about how a lot of people are, I have to start with lyrics because that's mm -hmm. the emotional song. I start with a riff. What does that look like on the micro scale for usually for you? The way I write songs is everything has to translate live for me because we're such a touring band. We have to play it every night. It has to be fun for us and the crowd. And I just turn up, you know, a guitar really loud and just like it would be on stage through a marshal. And I stand up and I just start playing riffs and whatever makes me feel like I'm like getting, I want to get on stage, then I've got something. If it doesn't make me feel like I want to go out on stage right now and play this song, then I don't really have anything. And then once I get that riff, it turns into more, of, then I've got like, okay, well, I know what kind of song this is going to be. And I'll start writing, you know, the verse and the chorus and that kind of stuff. And it just grows. And, and like I said, I'll stay in that world as long as I can of just writing and not worrying about anything else. And I'll just keep doing that from song to song to song till I feel like there's enough there to start. Let's start recording. Nice. So how about we got a little bit into guitar gear? Was there any gear that was really exciting to use on this record and really uh, was inspiring for you? 
Yeah, again, like with the gear, I do have quite a bit. I and mean, I've been buying stuff, little bits here and there. I never went out and just bought a ton of stuff. Um, I always just bought a few things, picked up a few things here and there. And I've got a lot of guitars. But what I didn't have was, you know, I had a lot of Les Pauls, a lot of SGs and a lot of Juniors and a lot of Gretsch and Fenders and stuff like that. But I didn't have anything that was kind of like different sounding. I didn't have any, you know, I got all the Marshalls and all that kind of stuff. Didn't have any cool combos. So on this record, I started buying just cheap ones, you know, just some old Gibson amps and um, small little Silvertone amp and a Silvertone guitar and this Eastwood guitar and L6. And they were so different sounding. And that pushed me into kind of coming up with some different kind of riffs and different sounds. And that was really exciting and fun. Very cool. So how about, did you mix this record yourself? I did, yeah. So how about, what did that process look like? You got done at the end and you did all of them at once? Or were you doing it a little as you went? Well, what does that look the like? way I recorded this record was I wanted everything to kind of sound mixed going down. That was something, another thing that I'd learned from Jerry Finn, but... I never really applied that to the extent that I did this time. Like I always did a little bit of help EQ, but this time I was really trying to like, I'm going, I know what I want it to sound like and I'm going to print it that way. You're saying you're getting the compression. Yeah, everything. Yeah. Even like the vocal sound was just, it went down full EQ, couple compressors, everything. It came in. I didn't really do much. I did some more compression on the end of it because once you start getting, trying to make it fit in the, the mix, you know, it just needed a little bit more help and character and stuff like that. But as far as EQ, you know, I have an SSL console in the house. It's a G plus 4K, 56 channel. So I would have, you know, the mics come up on that for guitar and I would just EQ it. I mean, first it was hitting an API 550 and coming up on the SSL. Which, if I'm right, that's another Jerry Finn thing. It's a lot of people's thing. Yes, but yeah. yes, yes, yes. <laughs> but yeah, and then I would just... EQ it right there on the console going down to Pro Tools. So everything would kind of come up already sounding mixed to a certain degree. I wasn't actually trying to mix the album. I was just, it was getting to a point where people needed to hear music. Management wanted to hear songs, label wanted to hear it. So I just kind of put together a couple rough mixes and did a couple tweaks and got it sounding to a point where I thought was pretty good that I could play people's stuff. After the listening session, everyone just said, who mixed this? I'm like, well, it's not mixed yet. And they're like, yeah, it is. It's done. And I thought, well, there's no way. I mean, we got to send this to somebody. And everyone was like, why would we? It sounds mixed. That's a nice thing. You know, so my ears had been hearing it every single day for three months. So I wasn't thinking it was done. You know, my ears were kind of burnt out. Or at least I thought they were anyway. But, you know, I guess it sounded finished. So how about you getting any outside ears? What's the band's input? Or are you, where you're saying you're three months. Is this mostly just you toiling away for those three months or are you getting any objectivity from people yeah i was kind of locked away for three months really yeah i didn't really the first time i started playing for people was those mixes and i thought i was ready for people to have a lot of comments and say this and that and needs work or whatever it was but it was the opposite everyone said this is done you're done <laughs> i thought no there's no way we can't it, there's got to be something but sure enough i guess i was done nice so why don't we talk a little bit about like what has shaped you musically? Can you give me like five records that have really had an impact on you over the years that have hmm. like kind of like brought you to where you are today? Five records. I would say five records that kind of sort of probably shaped me, which I didn't really realize until I kind of went back. I was on a road trip from L.A. to Vegas with my wife, and I was playing her some records that I loved in high school. And it was Color in the Shape by the Foo Fighters, Siamese Dream, Smashing Pumpkins, Nimrod, Green Day. It was Weezer Blue album. And so that's four. I don't know what else there was. But what I'd realized on that trip was that they all had this similar thing to them is that there was 
there's a lot of dynamics on those records. Those songs, there was aggressive stuff, there was some really soft stuff as well, and it all seemed to work. And they all kind of had this sound, I don't know, that I feel like I'm always, which I didn't realize, but when I'm always like trying to make music, it's like the sonics of those records is kind of what I'm always trying to get in a way. I love the way that Color in the Shape is really big and aggressive and thrashy, but it doesn't sound slick. You know, it doesn't sound it's the overproduced. Perfect amount of raw. Yeah, but it still sound. It can compete with everything that is great sounding and and produced well. Like it just, it's raw, but it sounds live. But it sounds really big and great. It still sounds hi-fi, but not. <laughs> You've been watching those videos that have just came out of the engineer showing I how have, they did yeah, it all. Yeah, yeah. That fucking blue. Yeah. Those are the best videos I've seen yeah, they're forever. Cool. Yeah, they're great. Yeah, that's an interesting point I see. So how about what's been shaping you lately? Is there anything that's been like new inspirations for you? I find that I'm liking sonically less and less records that are newer. I feel like there's a couple that are good. You know, I, I remember thinking the last... Arctic Monkeys. Well, the one, not this newest one, but AM, I think it's called. Some of those guitar sounds, that's what caught my ear. I think the band Royal Blood has some great sounding records. So that kind of stuff is exciting. But a lot of the other stuff, it's, I don't feel anything from it. It's the best way I can describe it. I don't know. I feel something from those other records. They feel performed. You know, it feels like a band. And they've got cool guitar sounds or bass tones. Or That's just my opinion, though. So... You're talking a lot about these performances. When you guys are doing the drums and laying the beds, is it just click with you in a, the control room, or are you playing along? What, what happens there? Oh, we usually play along with each other. I mean, usually what our drummer likes to play along with is a full band. So what we'll do is we'll do a track. Like, we'll record all of us playing. We'll do a take. And then we'll keep that there, and he'll play along to that recorded track. So it's the same for him every time. He likes to hear that. So one of us doesn't mess up and throw off his track. You know what I mean? So, But even with him, we'll do three takes, usually, just to have. And within those three takes, one of those takes is usually the take. And if I have to pull a fill or something like that, then we do that. But no more than five takes ever. We'll do three takes, and then we usually do, like, two fun takes, is what we call where he can just do whatever he wants, change up the beats if he wants. And sometimes we'll pull something from that, too. There's some crazy fill or something like that. So it's, it's a good philosophy. I like that, the idea of that. Okay, you've got this. Yeah, now as long can... as we have what we know we're supposed to get, now do whatever you want. So how about... I know you were saying it was more instinctual with vocals on this record, but am I wrong with the, like some of the, the first songs sounded a lot different mm -hmm. vocally. Did that come from anywhere? I don't know. I mean, I think <laughs> it just comes from performing every night. I mean, hopefully you're improving. You yes. know, I think that's really what it comes down to. I'm always trying to get better. I've taken some vocal lessons over the years. I don't know if I ever quite learned much in the earlier years. I did find a vocal coach that has been teaching me a lot more over the past couple years that I finally felt like I'm actually learning something and improving. Her name is Valerie Morehouse, and she's been great for me. So that's probably part of it. <laughs> Uh, and it's funny because, like, obviously you're known for a gruff voice and so many people in punk, we get so scared, like, all right, don't change this attitude though. Mm -hmm. and, and like vocal lessons are the vocal lessons for me was not to change my voice it was to stop losing my voice because I was using it incorrectly. I still I wanted to keep sort of the same vibe. I just wanted to know how to do it the right way. And she has showed you what to do that. Yeah, I was doing a lot of stuff the wrong way. Yes, <laughs> you know? yes. I think that that's the main thing. Like, we think of punk tradition, it's like Blake from Drawbreaker. It's like you lose your voice right after you make your big record. Yeah, it's I like... was losing I was losing it every night on stage, and I just knew I couldn't keep doing that. I couldn't keep it up. So I just wanted to figure out how to do things a little bit better or smarter. But again, like I said, it comes... If I listen to our records, 
even without the vocal lessons, every record, my voice sounds a little bit different. And fortunately for me, I enjoy singing more and more as I go on, and I feel like it's getting easier instead of more difficult. I don't know if my voice is any better or if it was even ever any good in the first place, <laughs> but all I know is that it's becoming easier. Totally. So are you producing other bands as well, or just just your stuff? No, I don't really have enough time as of right now, and nothing's really come along that, you know, nobody's really asked me to produce anything, so I don't even know if I have the time to do it, even if I really wanted to. Good thing, though, at the same time. I guess so. I mean, we're pretty busy. So I often ask people, what's the musical bane of your existence? Is there something you struggle with or something you can't stand in music that you keep having to fight? I don't know. I think... Every record is like you're a new band to me. That's the way I've always looked at it. Like there's never a time where you just feel like, well, now we've made it. Now things are easy. I feel like it's harder and harder every record for people to give your record an honest listen. I mean, you have to go out there and you have to do all the interviews you can and you have to just try to, you know, beat down the door and just let everybody know like what you're doing where you're coming from and and why they should give it a real listen i guess it's hard when you're a band that's been around for a while to have that honest listen because there's no matter what you can't escape the, the fact that people have some sort of preconceived you know thought about your band whether it's good or bad um i just look at it you got to do the work every album you know and it's a struggle every album it's an interesting thing because i think so many people do get so worried about the baggage of what their past is and then mm -hmm. how you're going to defy it or how you're going to keep it going. That is so much of the stress of somebody. But you make a great point that it's like some of that is what you're doing right now is the mm -hmm. war on that is you got to just go out there and tell people. You just got to do your best at it, you know. So I wrote a book on the music business at one point. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things I talked about was um, how videos can, you can either change the perception of who you are, you can mm -hmm. augment it or whatever. So I always thought Fat Lip was one of the more genius videos because being a punk kid at that time people there was a very big thing of like you better not bring fucking rap into this thing you mm -hmm. better not fucking yeah, yeah. bring rap in but what was so genius about that video is hey it's a bunch of punk kids who are enjoying this band who are doing the thing you're not supposed to be doing <laughs> yeah. so i was very curious was that conscious i mean it was conscious to a point that we wanted to bring rap into it i'd been trying to do that a little bit like fat lip was not the first time i tried to do that i think we'd unsuccessfully done it a little bit in the demo stages of a couple other songs that never really worked and i think it was kind of thought to be abandoned by the band but i still knew i had this i had this thought that it could work and once i came up with the those verses and there was no words yet it was just sort of the rhythm and that guitar riff then the guys we all sort of said oh wait this can work actually we just need to come up with some good lyrics now so, I mean, it was conscious, but I mean, we didn't think we were doing something that we shouldn't do. We just knew that people had said it probably would never work. Yes. I, I, it felt like uh, every time somebody did it, it was like very cringe until that moment. Yeah, that was yeah. the first time. It was like, oh, this is fun and good. I think that was the thing that made us want to do it more, or at least I know it made me want to do it more, was that everyone around us was just saying, it can't be done. It's it's lame. It's not going to happen. And if, even if it does, it's not going to be good. <laughs> you know. So I thought, okay, well, that there's my reason to try. It's funny, like, you know, I'm walking down Bedford Avenue like a week ago where I do, I was doing this, and I see somebody with a shirt that just says, borshin getting smaller and smaller. Oh, really? And smaller. <laughs> that's so cool. Like, that's a great fucking shirt. That is. We might have to <laughs> so, steal that. <laughs> I was like, wait, Googling that, like, <laughs> where, where, where do I get one of those yeah. for a birthday present? 
So how about, how have you evolved? Is there a way your music taste is changing throughout this time? Because like, you guys seem to still keep the spirit of the band, but I think mm -hmm. that there's always that thing of like, you're gonna grow as a person. Yeah. What have you embraced in recent years that you think is different than those early days? It's funny, because I really don't think we've really changed that much. I, I mean, the spirit sounds very similar. I feel like when I was in high school, I was still listening to a very eclectic group of artists. You know, it was, I was listening to Frank Snow and Elvis Costello and the Sex Pistols in the same day back then in high school and I still do that now so <laughs> you know that is an eclectic thing that you can kind of ride for a while because I would blast my music and I would and my parents like my mom never said anything to me I always used to think doesn't she think I'm like a weird kid like she doesn't ever say like where did you start listening to that you know she never did and I always thought I would turn it up louder to think is she gonna like ever notice that uh this music I'm listening to is it not very normal for a teenager because she thought it was cool too I don't know how about let's get into some last gear stuff uh, okay so if you have two hundred dollars what's one of the best secret pieces of gear that uh somebody could buy that they probably don't know about yeah i've been asked about that before i think the the best cheap gear and i don't know if it's two hundred dollars i know there's a couple mm -hmm. things yeah, like that but uh, some things that are cheaper that are great are the 500 series stuff especially like uh the company cappy Yes. C-A-P-I. Yeah. That stuff's great. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah, a lot of that 500 stuff is really good. I mean, it's maybe a little bit more, but you can get stuff for like 400 bucks. Mm -hmm. You know, there's like the standard audio stuff that's, there's a couple of those things. There's like the Levelor. I can't remember how much those are, but I think they Not go for like expensive. 350 or 400 or something like that. You know, those things are great. How about anything in the box that really has uh, been really blowing you away? In the box? I mean, there's a lot of great stuff. I mean thing that was new to me because I was mixing for the first time was I was using a lot of Echo Boy stuff. And I know it's not new at all, but I never really dove into it as much as I did. And I used a lot of it on this record. And that was a tip that I got from Ryan Hewitt, who's oh, an nice. engineer, who I've learned a lot from. And he uses that stuff and praises it a lot. And, you know, I'd always hit him up and be like, you know, what's a good thing for this kind of sound? He, Echo Boy. And I'd say, okay, well, what about this sound? Echo Boy. And then I was like, I got to dive into this more and realize how many sounds are, are in that. Like, you yeah. can use that for so many different kinds of effects. Like I said, I'm late on it, but I've never, I haven't really been mixing yes. you know, until now. So. But it is that thing. You can go on that thing forever. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned Ryan Hewitt, Jerry. Can you tell me any really good lessons you've learned from your, from some of your producer friends? It's hard. I think the biggest lesson I learned, and you know, you're asking me about like where to get some confidence to do it. One of the biggest things I learned, I guess, from people like the Lord Algies, um, Jack Joseph Puig, Rob Cavallo, a lot of these guys that I've known for a long time just told me to just do it, like, just trust yourself, just do it. And I would say, well, I don't know if I can, or I don't know if I'm doing, if this sounds good. And they're like, it does, just, just go do it. Don't think about it. I think it's that thing, when you have good instincts already, it makes things a lot easier. And you're talking a lot about trusting your instincts with all your songs, and that seemed to work. Yeah, I guess, I mean, I think with the engineering stuff and the, the sounds and the sonics of, of things, it takes a while to, to train your ear in a way. Like, you'll do stuff. I find, like, I'm not doing much different than I was doing before. For some reason, it sounds better now. And I don't know why that is. Like, I'm still turning the same knobs around the same way, you know, and just little things sort of sound different. I don't know. I mean, when I listened to some of the stuff that I was doing before, when I thought I was really bad at it and I didn't know what I was doing, and I didn't even know what frequencies meant what, I was just turning knobs till I, th I thought, okay, I'll stop there. Some of that stuff sounds really good. I didn't know what I was doing, but it actually kind of worked. So how about with that, uh, what advice do you have for 
the kids starting out on how to get through there since you've been through this? Well, a bit of advice. One of the things that really helped me a lot was going on those sites like mixwiththemasters.com and Pure Mix. Seeing all those guys, and what I would do is I would pick one song that I had, like a session of my own, some 41 song, and I would do it, you know, seven different ways. The same song by, you know, I'd pick the seven guys, whether it's like Andrew Sheps or Jakir King, I think his name is. You know, I just picked a bunch of different guys, CLA and TLA. And and what I found was, I mean, Michael Brower, too, who we worked with as well before in the past. And I found that like every time I would mix that song in a different way, it sounded kind of the same. And what that told me was that no matter what I do, my ear is going to take me a certain place. And once I realized that, then none of that stuff mattered. What I took away from all those guys was little things like workflow and stuff like that. Things that I was able to get that sound that I could hear in my ear. I could get it faster because they taught me a different way to do it. Yeah, but you learned they, the parallel compression thing from Michael Brower, and then you're like, well, does that sound? But I'm still going to have my instinct. Of yeah, which it's going to it's like. going to take me to the same place I'm trying to go, no matter what. So it just becomes a workflow thing. I'm like, what? is easy for you and what helps you get there. But you're going to kind of get to where you're trying to get to. It can take you a lot longer sometimes if you don't know how to get there. Yeah, and that's what I was doing for the longest time. And now it's things are a lot, little bit easier because of those websites that taught me a lot. How about advice you have for kids that not mixing, but pursuing as a band, what's some good advice you could give a musician that's coming up or a band that feels they got it? It's so hard for me to give advice for musicians because the, it changes so much. This business changes all the time, and I don't know how to navigate as a new band right now. I have no idea. I think there's certain things that are probably always going to be the same, which is it's always going to come down to music. It's going to come down to performance. And if you can get those two things, and you know, the third thing is it's always going to be a lot of work no matter what. So, you know, I guess the only advice I can give is the same advice Ice-T gave me in the early <laughs> days is that the only thing harder than be in the Mac is stay in the Mac. <laughs> and I think that's the perfect place to end this. Cool. <laughs> If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the golden rule of the internet, that if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, Facebook, share, or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. Please check out Noise Creator's website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you're unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can be also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going. 